The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it is to you that we offer this prayer, this request. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. We ask you to do that. We have eyes, we have ears, we can read, we can hear, but we cannot really hear, we cannot really see unless you, by your Spirit, reveal. So we ask you, reveal, speak. Commission your spirit now to move through this place in in unique, illumining power to show us Jesus. To reveal your glory in the face of Jesus, Lord. That's that's our need, that's our request of you, that you would do that this morning. And that maybe you would show it to us, that you would show us your glory in his face in a different way than last week. We we saw it last week in, in his face, flushed and wet with tears. And maybe this week, Lord, we see it flushed and taut, muscled in anger. His face shows us your face in different ways. Help us to process that and put it, put it together and, and hold them both, hold both these images and, and in the, the agitation, in the... In the the anger of Jesus this morning, Lord, will you show us some additional aspect of your good glory? And Lord, that all is meant to fall on us in a sweet way. This, this should come to us in a sweet way. So, so when you show us something of his face and, and your glory in it, would you, would you cause that to come to us sweetly? Please. Order this morning here. Give me clarity in, in what I say and how I say it, and, and give us focus in how we hear. We look to you to, to speak and show us Christ, reveal your glory. It's in his name we pray, and, and we pray that for the sake of his people, us, and for the nations that he is drawing. So move this morning, we pray, Lord, and build your church and honor your name. Thank you. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 19. For some time now, we've been following Jesus through this gospel as he journeys towards Jerusalem and what awaits him there in that city. In the previous two passages before today, both took place at the very conclusion of this long journey as Jesus drew near to the city. 
They are, they are right in front of the city coming down the Mount of Olives. And so both passages, last week and the one before it, they both took place in the same basic time, in the same basic place, but they have two very different moods. The triumphal entry, a couple passages ago, it's a victory parade. It's a, a triumph, a celebration. Here, Jesus, here he is, the king. And, and Jesus went through, through great lengths to identify himself with Old Testament prophecy so that everybody would see and would realize this is the king who brings in the kingdom, who brings in the promised peace. He's the one who comes in victory to offer peace to people. And everyone rejoices over that, even though they don't really get what he means. They don't really understand it. But there's great rejoicing there, followed immediately with a total mood change. As the parade draws near to the city, Jesus sees the people there and he begins to weep. Active, grievous crying. Saw this last week. It's a total mood switch. Rejoicing to weeping. And we're told why. Jesus sees the people, sees the celebration, hears it all, and can't miss it. But he knows that they don't really get it. They don't understand who he actually is. They don't understand what's meant by peace, what's meant by salvation. He comes to bring peace with God. Not peace in all the political and military and, and temporal things that they're, they're thinking about and they're looking at. He comes to bring peace with God, what we most need and are most satisfied with. But they don't get it. They, they don't see him as he really is. They miss him. And tragedy, that means when we miss Jesus, the wrath of God remains. No, peace with God means instead remaining wrath before God. We remain enemies of his, objects of his wrath, which is incredibly sobering truth, explained by Jesus as he uses the terms of a destroyed city. Raised to the ground. God's judgment looks like that. That's the final note struck there in Luke as Jesus enters the city. Judgment is real, and he sees it, and he weeps over that. That's his attitude, grieved and sorrowful. And we also mentioned last week that while we see Jesus grieved and sorrowful and mourning as he looks at people in their confusion and in their lostness, we also recognize that he can be angry, too. Jesus can be, he can be angry. Oftentimes his anger is connected to religious leaders, either official or, or unofficial leaders. And very often, if you look at the context, you notice they're, they're willfully rejecting him, knowingly rejecting who he is and what he's about. And in so doing, they are blocking, they are hindering other people from coming to and investigating and finding Jesus. In those kinds of situations... That draws the anger of Jesus, and that's what we're going to see in our passage today. This is the first passage that Luke wants us to see right after the weeping Jesus. Luke puts it right here, presents it to us so that we see these two things right next to each other. He comes up to the city weeping. First thing he does is he goes to the temple and burns. Look at what's going on there, why he's agitated with such zeal, why he is condemnatory in tone, what that means for us. As I said, when I prayed, there's, there's 
heat in this. It's subdued in this passage. We don't, we don't get a lot of it. We don't, it's not a long passage. It's very short verses, in fact. But it's there. And we're going to be looking only at what's here in Luke, but you probably know the other Gospels talk about it as well. There's anger, there's frustration, there's zeal here. Not heavily emphasized, but it's there. And it's, and it's very different than what we saw last week. And so we, last week we see the tears, and this week we see the taut muscles and the why? Well, we're going to think about that. And that should rest on us sweetly. Because it's good that Jesus is like that in this situation. It's a sweet thing for us. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what's here in Luke, not, not some composite view from all the other gospel accounts. Just what's here in Luke, because that's what's before us. Let me read it first. It's very short, just three verses, four verses. And then we'll make two observations. And the observations are lopsided. The first one's much longer than the second one. As I suppose is common for me. But anyway, let me read the passage. End of Luke 19. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Short, subdued expression. But there is heat in this driving out those who sold. There is heat in the you have made it a den of robbers. So here's the first observation. The heart of God burns to secure a pure temple. The heart of God burns to secure a pure temple. For himself and particularly for us. Verse 45 says that Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold which involves some agitation, driving them out. He didn't just invite them to leave. He, he drove them from the temple. Now, the temple, if you think of it like this, back of the hand sort of way, it's concentric squares. In, in the middle is the, the big building itself, the temple building itself, and then moving out from there would be these courts, like courtyards, and in the outermost courtyard, the one in which the Gentiles were allowed to come and worship, in that court, a market had formed. With the encouragement and approval of the priests who ran the place, with their approval, because they got a cut of all the revenue. And what's this market about? Well, they are selling various animals, all kinds of different animals for sacrifices, and exchanging money, kind of like a modern-day currency exchange, a market that itself, the idea of it itself, is not wrong, but in fact necessary. It's necessary. Worshippers coming to the temple often had to, had to present various sacrifices of all different sorts according to what situation was. And if they're coming from some distance, it would be impractical, perhaps even impossible, to bring the various animals with them from home. And if they came from a foreign country, and they brought foreign currency with them, they'd have to exchange the money into the local currency to offer the proper 
tax at the temple. So the market, a market of this sort itself, it was necessary somewhere. But not there, not on this space. That's the problem. Not in the place of worship where people are supposed to come and pray, come and pray and listen to teaching from God and, and contemplate God and think about themselves and their hearts in relation to him. It, it, can you imagine right now while we're doing this, there is a Christian bookstore stall right there at the same time? Crazy. But there it is. Why would anyone think to put a market there? Because of the pressures of commerce. Product, readily available at point of need, will get bought and will command a premium price. Which is a perfectly fine way of talking about capitalism. But should leave you feeling a little unclean when you say that sentence in connection with sacrifice to and the worship of the Holy One. But somewhere along the line, someone in the priest's family, and let me say that again, someone in the priest's family thought that was a great idea. And merchants were willing to pay him, and the market's born. And the temple is commercialized. And the heart of God burns over this pollution of his holy place. He wants there to be a pure temple. And we see this anger in the heart of Jesus here. He began to drive out those who sold, saying, My house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah 56. God talking about what his house, the temple, would be a house of prayer, that is a house of worship, where people would draw near to him. This is what my house is going to be, he said. So the Lord looking ahead to the future, there, there's going to be a place, a, a, a right place, where my people will come and will pray. But, then Jesus continues the quote, switching over to Jeremiah chapter 7, but you, talking to the religious leaders and the merchants there, you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting from Jeremiah, and everybody would have known Jeremiah chapter 7 is a scathing chapter. Spoken to the people right before God destroyed Jerusalem. So he's, he's picking up a really heavy context there. You've made it a den of robbers just like before the last time it got destroyed. That's what, that's what the situation is again. You've made it a place of robbers. That is a hideout or a lair, a safe house for robbers. The place where robbers go and feel sec secure, safe, hidden away from the eyes of the law. There's so much irony in that. You've made this a den of robbers, safe from the reach of the law, right there, say you, right there in that building is where the Holy One lives. The whole thing is about the law. And you feel here that you're safe to carry on. You've made this a den of robbers. You say that, that that's where he dwells, yes, indeed, and you feel free to carry on abusing the worshipers and fleecing the sheep right here in front of him. You're not taking this seriously. 
You don't really think anything of this. The one who said, you shall not steal, and the one who said, you shall not covet, and the one who said, you shall have no other God before me, including the God Mammon, lives right there, and you violate all that right here. No big deal. They look like it. They wear pure robes, and they, they, they purify their hands before they perform the rituals, and they offer up pure, unblemished animals to be sacrificed on the altar right there, but their hearts are far from him. They worship him with their lips, but they serve the God, money, wealth. They made it a den of robbers. You steal, I need to think about this carefully, to understand the accusation or the problem. We've got to understand the problem, because this is what the problem is that Jesus came to correct. They made a den of robbers, stealing money, yes, there's price gouging going on there, but more brazenly with a high hand, they steal honor from that God. And they steal the honoring of God from all the worshipers who come to them. Think about what's meant here in this temple, what the temple is about. Think about this purpose of the temple. It's not just the house of God where God dwells. It is that. It is the house that uniquely, on, in, in all of the earth, God chose uniquely to say, I will put my unique presence, especially here in this place. I'm going to reveal myself and my goodness and my glory here in this place. And if you were to look at the temple, everything about it is a picture. The architecture, so carefully and finely constructed, and the furniture in it, the smells in it of the incense burned, the, the procedures and the rituals and the sacrifices, everything in that place is, is a pointer, is, is a picture saying this is what God is like. This is what his presence is like. This is what heaven is like. This is what purity and beauty and rest is like. And so to desecrate that place is to, is to disregard and to count as of no matter God, heaven, rest, glory, beauty. To set it all aside, to throw it all out. It is, it is indeed the place where God said, I will dwell. And so to set that all aside and, and to, to shun it is to rob him of honor. But more than that, God, God made this place and God said, I'm going to dwell there and invite people, call people to come there because not just does he want to reveal himself, but he wants to reveal himself to people. For people's sake. We can talk about the temple and should as, as the place where God dwells, and we could talk about it in that sense, it's, it's about God. And as we said last week, everything is first and foremost about God. But we need to turn that over and say, and the temple is about people. It's the house where God dwells, and it is to be the house of prayer. To be a place where God says, come, 
I live here. Come, you can meet me here. Come, this is the place where I am to be honored. Come, you can find what's honorable about me. You can find what's glorious about me here. A place where people can come and can find God, can reach out to him and commune with him, can talk to him and hear from him and come into his presence, which is very much what the human soul needs, what we're made for. God was giving a great gift in building a house that he would inhabit in their midst, close and nearby and accessible. And these priests, these merchants, they are polluting the whole experience and robbing people of it. Can you imagine just the simple mental distraction? You're like trying to, to really pray to deal with God. I mean, to, to, to sit in God's presence and to contemplate your life and some issue, some problem, some, some deep thing in your heart. As you deal with God over that, there's a vulnerability as your heart opens up and it maybe even leads you to tears and, and you're contemplating and thinking and being real before God. To try to do all of that at a table in the food court in the mall can't happen. It wouldn't happen. Now, what, I, what I'm not saying is you can't read your Bible at a food court in the mall. I've done that. You've probably done that at some point. You can do that. But don't, don't miss this. You're not deeply meeting with God in that moment. If, if that's all that you've experienced from God, you, you're missing something. There is, there is a depth of communion with God that he means for us to have that you cannot have at the table in the food court in the mall because your heart will not open up you will not let yourself weep at that table because you're incredibly conscious of all the people all around you and all the hubbub it's it's distracting it's stifling that alone just just the hustle and bustle it takes something from a sincere worshiper that's what they've done, and they've, they've introduced that. And worse, the coercive mixed message of the marketplace. Think about what that would be like. You're there at the temple. Maybe you're like that the tax collector earlier in Luke, beating his breast. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'm a sinner, and I need to offer a sacrifice, and... Right over there are people making money off of my need. I need to have an animal killed in my place. I need it to die for my sin. I have to offer it, and I'm broken over my sin. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and I'm grieved. And there marketing this and gouging me over it. Put yourself in that spot. Feel the, the coercion, the manipulation of this. Right here at my point of vulnerability, I can't stop and consider price at that moment. Here I am, broken over my sin. God has spoken to me, drawn me to repentance, and I walk up and I say, I need an animal. 
what? You're going to charge me what for that? That's too much. I can't, I can't do that because I can't say, I'm grieved over my sin, God. I want to offer you a sacrifice, but not at that price. Goodness, that's way too much money. I can't do that. So I'm going to pay it. And all the while, I'm going to feel like I'm being worked. And I resent the fact that I'm being coerced here, that, that the word that comes to my mind is not blessing and is not grace and is not mercy and is not generosity, but it's extortion. Here I am at the temple, come to meet with God, and the thing I think about is I'm going to get ripped off. And I hate going there. I hate the whole experience because it's just like, ugh. But I have to go. Those who set that up have robbed that worshiper of what God means the place to be. And then there's the great deception misleading into damning falsehood as the priests and the merchants cloud over the truth about God. They turn worship into perfunctory performance as they simultaneously communicate, you must come and offer sacrifice. But this holy, holy, holy God thing, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, yeah, you must come and offer sacrifice. There's the holy of holies right there. I say that with my lips. But the wares laid out in front of you say, I don't really believe that. That's not really true. He doesn't really care about your heart. This holy God thing, here's how you make that all good and right. You buy this animal, you offer it up as sacrifice, and you're good to go. We are. I mean, look, we're, we're good. We're, we're fine. We're here. We're the priest. We know the word of God best. We think this is okay and fine. So what, all you have to do is do the right worship thing. God doesn't care about your heart. How you become right before God is doing the right worship thing. That is evil and false and communicated to the worshipers every day by the whole setup. Here are the men who know the law, and they don't think there's actually any life found in that God. They really think that life is found in the money. They worship the God mammon as their life shows. And so the harassed and helpless sheep come in distracted and coerced and receive from them the message that I guess life really is found here in the things of earth. That's really what I should pursue, and I can appease God by performing the right worship act. I guess that's what I should do. And they are taught, and they are, they are pushed away. They are led away from truth. They are led away from the sacrifice that God actually desires, a humble and contrite heart. all in the very house of God that was meant to be a house of prayer. Instead, they have robbed God of his glory and robbed people of God. That's the problem. And here's, here's the point where we say, like, okay, you know, 
Shame on them. That was a long time ago and not me, so, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the deal? Great recitation of the history, I suppose. Here's where this turns to matter for us. Jesus walks in and says, No! Thank God. Thank God Jesus walks in and says, no. He will have none of that. And we don't care about them. We care about us. He will have none of that for us. And here's how that gets there, gets, gets here to us. In the zeal of this Jesus has zeal for the honor of God and great loving concern for God's people. His heart burns to see the temple made right, what it is. And so in anger, he pulls into town here, he walks right to the temple, and he begins, it says he begins, he didn't even finish. It was a big place, lots of tables. He didn't, he didn't get it all done. But he begins to chase out some of them. There, that fixed the problem, solved. No. Not by a long shot. It didn't work the first time he did it either. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, the scholars differ on this, but I'm convinced that the best way to explain, as most scholars are, I think, the best way to explain the differences between John's account of the temple cleansing at the very beginning of the Gospel of John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, the end, with all their differences, is that Jesus did this twice. Once at the very beginning of his ministry and once at the very end of his ministry bookending to show us something. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm doing. I've come to make a clean temple because the heart of God burns that there be a pure, clean, good, right temple. That ain't happening in this house. I chase them out and like cockroaches when the light goes on. They're gone, but they're not gone. They're going to come back. That's not happening in this house. I need to make a new temple. But he's showing us in this, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm here because the heart of God burns. Let me show you how it burns. I'm here because God is passionately committed to making, to securing, to protecting a temple that is right. In other words, a place where God can be seen, shown for who he is in all of his glory, rightly honored in a place where people, men and women and boys and girls can come and can meet him, can, can see who he is, can give up to him the honor that he deserves and can receive from him the honor that they need, the honoring that we need. We're made for this. Jesus says, I'm going to make that be. That's why I was sent. First thing I do when I come to Jerusalem, I attack the temple to make it clean. on purpose to make a point. There needs to be a new and better temple, a new and better place where God and man meet, and that place is Jesus himself. Even in his own character, his two natures, God and man, meet right there in Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, we people, we come to Jesus, we meet God in him and see him clearly and accurately. See him weeping and see him angry. See him holy and see him merciful. 
We see God and we can approach God in Christ, cleansed from our sin by a sacrifice that we did not have to buy. Didn't cost us anything. We didn't have to obey ourselves into possession. We didn't have to lay down our money to, to, to get it, to gain it. He instead said, I pay the price and I offer it to you as a free gift. If you will receive it, it's yours. This is a sweet thing that happens only because of the zeal, the firm, determined commitment of Christ to make a temple that's right. He himself will die to make it so. This is a gracious gift given to be received. And when we receive it, we come into the presence of God. We find a place to commune with him. Now, Jesus is not actually a physical place, of course, which is the beauty of it. Because the New Testament will also talk about, in other places, how each individual Christian, you yourself, are the temple of God. Why? Because in you yourself, Christian, God has come to dwell. You meet God, Christian, you meet God now wherever you are. You can meet him wherever you are. You can go into his presence wherever you are. This is a sweet thing. And then the New Testament will also talk about how the church is the temple of God because God uniquely dwells in the midst of this people also so we can meet God when we gather together, two or three of us in one place. This is all accomplished because Jesus, sent by God, is determined to accomplish it. Not because we're good or we're strong or we're wise, but because he is. So we should, we should consider this and respond to it in a couple of ways. We have to think, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you will only say thank you, thank you, thank you if you actually think this is worth anything. We've all, we've all been around or seen or maybe even experienced this yourself. The giving and receiving of a gift where somebody says, thank you. Because that's the right thing to say. But you don't really think it's actually worth anything or even know what it is. It's something. Never seen anything like it before. Put it on the shelf until you figure out what you just got. What God sent Christ to give you is himself. A place for you to come and to, to sit at rest and pray without distraction. It can't be blocked. It can't be chased out. You can, you can go into the littlest room in your house and commune with God. You, can, you carry it with you wherever you are. You can't be ever kept away from it. The psalmist cried out famously, oh, when can I get back to the house of God? And you get to say, oh, whenever I feel like it. I'm right there. Whenever I feel like it, I don't have to get back to over there or over there. It's right here. 
I meet God in Christ, and Christ has come to live in me. He has given you something precious. He's given you the ability to commune without distraction and without any coerced, extorted message. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work hard for it. You don't ever, ever throw it away and thwart it and then have to regain it. He, he is yours by grace, by his determination, not by your goodness. And he says, come, come into my presence and commune with me again and again and again. Come, 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 come. He doesn't say, come if you got the money. Come if you can work the transaction. Come. And there is no mixed message here because the message is loud and clear again and again and again. I am the one you need for rest. I am the one who gives you life. That's Jesus who always tells us the truth and clearly pushes it forward towards us again and again in the scriptures. Come, find life in me. So to worship and say thank you and then perhaps the next obvious thing is then take him up on it. The fact that I can commune with God, the fact that he has made his presence available to me within does not mean automatically that I walk with him. In fact, most of us often do not. When you find yourself weary and heavy laden and you find yourself worried and, and confused and when you find yourself threatened and you find yourself angry and you find yourself frustrated, what you find yourself is you find yourself outside of the temple. You just discovered yourself apart. Return. Come. Take him up on it. And realize something. That while he calls us to come, and while he says, come, I don't care about your sin, come. You're not, you're not ever like forbidden. You're not ever cast out. You're not ever unclean and in, inappropriately entering. Come, but also realize this. Jesus is just as much today equally committed to the purification of this temple and of this temple. He is still at work to make a pure and spotless bride. He is still at work to sanctify us because he is still passionately committed that God be honored in the temple. He is still passionately committed that we actually meet with God and that the nations who look on see the truth. So we've got a couple of things to hold there. Like he, he bids you, he invites you, he calls you, come, come, come. And, and in, the, in that call to come, there is the never mind your sin, it's already atoned for. And then on the other hand, there is, but this is a place of purity, and I am about purification. So realize that and, and be committed to that yourself. Walk with him and pursue holiness, not in your own strength, in his strength. I put one sentence over all of this. 
to summarize this first point, what I, what I would want to say is that Jesus is committed in you and in us and in his work. He is committed to the supremacy of God in all things. He wants God to be first in your life and first in the church's life, and he has shown that and works towards that. And so we should think about that and work towards it ourselves in his power, not in our own. So there's the first longest point. The heart of God burns that there be a pure temple. And that's a really good thing because he sent Jesus then to make there to be one, a place for us to meet him. And he is committed still to meet with us and still to purify us. So give thanks for that and take him up on it and walk in holiness. This is a good God who has given this to us, who's given us Christ to give us this. So what you have here is a Jesus who, yes, indeed, is, is fist-pounding angry, if you look at just the surface. Yes, indeed, has a clenched jaw. But if you think about that for a second, you think like, oh, thank God, what a sweet thing. Nonetheless, there will always be a majority of people, in fact, who will not come to that conclusion, who will continue to oppose him. And that's the second point, shorter. Here it is. I think with the second paragraph. Prejudice will continue to drive opposition to this Jesus. Prejudice will continue to drive opposition to this Jesus. Prejudice is a judgment formed without examining the facts. I looked it up in the dictionary. without thoughtfully considering what the truth is. Prejudice says, never mind the facts, here's my judgment. That usually means then that the judgment is reached if it's not based on truth and facts, it's based on something else, preference, desire, prior opinion, impression, feeling. I think this, I want this, this would suit me best. This is what we've always done. This fits my preferred view of the world. Therefore, decision. This is so clearly the case in verse 47 and following. Jesus teaching daily in the temple. We get a little summary statement there of the, of the coming week. Day by day, he taught in the temple, and the people were amazed by his teaching. They hung on his every word which doesn't mean they believed, it just means they were supremely impressed. As we'll see, Jesus conducts himself, you know, what do you know, remarkably well when pressed by people and attempted to be trapped by people and in, in verbal repartee, he does a really good job at that and people are amazed. The hang in his every word, but not everyone. The leadership, chief priests, scribes, other important community leaders says they knew the scriptures, they heard his teaching, how it lined up with God's word, 
They'd seen God's power at work to heal, to cast out demons, to oppose evil, to deliver people with compassion, to give sight to the blind, to make the lame walk and the dead live. And now they see his zeal for the purity of the temple, which is the center of everything, his zeal for the purity of the temple. And so they carefully considered all these facts and finally began to wonder if, in fact, Jesus was the Messiah like he said he was. That would be the reasonable and rational approach to look at the mountain of evidence and pause and think, maybe I've got this wrong before. Maybe I should think about this and consider, maybe. But prejudiced people don't bother themselves with the facts. With evidence and truth. It's much easier and far more common for people to figure out what suits them and then go with that. They saw Jesus and were seeking to destroy him. For what? Well, they were just seeking to destroy him because they wanted to. They couldn't because all the crowds didn't think like that. All the crowds were hanging on his words. They had to figure out how to deal with the crowds, and and they would get around to doing that. But they're settled on the answer. The only problem is how to get there. And they've been seeking to destroy Jesus for the whole book. Ever since way back in the beginning, he contradicted them on their teaching on the Sabbath and therefore knocked them down a peg out of their position of authority. They've been after him ever since. How can we destroy him? And time and time again, a miracle happens, and the question is not, what does that say? But the question is, how can we suppress that? Teaching happens, and it's not. How how can we listen to that, but how can we shut him up? That is prejudice, pure and simple. And here we have it again, right here at the end, foreshadowing what's coming in, in, by the end of this week, foreshadowing that. But there's something else going on here. Luke puts this here again in a way to, to foreshadow what's coming up so that we kind of know they're going to deal with the crowds and they're going to get him. But to also raise a question for us. Here are people strongly committed to destroying him. And we're supposed to read this and say, I get it. You want to destroy him? I just asked the question, why? Well, I know why. (laughs) He just just ran them out of business. Sentence right before, he he just chased them out of the temple and shut down their business and, and shamed them in front of everybody. I get it. These guys, man, that's just bias, that's vindictiveness. And the point is that maybe right there, that pokes you. Because that's how the world is today. I recognize I'm talking to a church, and I'm talking to Most people in here, I mean, I don't know everybody in here, but most people in here, I I recognize that you're Christians, I understand that. But not everybody is. And you know people who aren't. And one of the things we need to understand, maybe you yourself about yourself, maybe you about a friend of yours, 
that this is how the world still works. And we need to be clear about that and bring that up in front of people. Point out, how are you responding to Jesus and why? I've, I, talked, I have talked to, maybe as you have, lots and lots and lots of people who, who do not agree with Christianity, who do not embrace Jesus, who do not trust him. And I can't tell you how many times, it's got to be in the high 90 percentage times, what is Christianity then? And they don't know. Tell me, what is the Christian message? And what they tell me, I, so often I'm so happy to be able to say, actually, that's not it. That's actually not what the Christian message is. Really, what's going on there is, whatever the Christian message is, I'm against it. Why? Because I'm against it. Why? Ask yourself that. Or maybe ask your friend that. Why? Do you know who this Jesus is? This, this Jesus of, of Luke, of the New Testament, this Jesus of the Bible? And what he offers, if you see him like that, then maybe the, uh, I don't like angry people. I don't like, yeah, but, but think about that for one more time around the loop. And why is he angry? And what's that about? What's that providing? What does it offer to you? People so often tragically do not actually think about Jesus, this Jesus. They may know, and if you examine him, I, I promise you, I promise you he will say something you don't like. Think again, one more time around the circle. Does that mean automatically that he's wrong? Maybe, maybe this Jesus, think about what he says. Maybe he's right, and maybe he says that because he is so, so, so committed to the honor of God and knows that that is where your life would be found and knows that the path you're walking, that he just crossed when he said that's not the case. He just crossed that path because he knows that's the path that leads to death, and he wants you to find the path that leads to life. Maybe that's why he said no. Wouldn't it be more fair and, in fact, wise to give open-handed consideration? Oh, I have considered, say some people. I have considered. I've read, and they list off, and I say, well, you read that guy who's convinced Jesus is wrong, and you read that guy who's convinced Jesus is wrong, and you listened to that person and that friend and that coworker. Have you considered the other side of things? There are answers to all that. This is, this is a, an old faith. There's nothing new. There are answers. Prejudice says, I'm not concerned with the answers. I've already reached my conclusion. Don't bother me with the facts. I've decided. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to respect you. If, if you disagree with me, I want to respect you, but I, I want to push you a little bit and say, that's not fair. And if what Jesus is saying, if it's true, the offer laid in front of you is tremendous. And the danger you are in, if you skip it, is tremendous. 
consider it. Look at these people here, these, these leaders, these authorities who seek to destroy this Jesus. Good and right and true, gracious and merciful and compassionate as he is. That doesn't make any sense. Let me push you a little bit. Let me push you a little bit here. You're, you're being more like them than you want to be. When you set him aside without fairly and openly considering who he is. That's prejudice, and we don't want to be prejudiced people. Maybe Jesus says things that are hard, and maybe Jesus sometimes says no, and maybe Jesus sometimes has, has a bit of an anger in his voice and his words because he knows what a good and pure temple is and what it would be and that you would find life there. And he is unwilling to settle for less for the honor of God and for the good of people. The heart of God burns that there be a pure temple. And God invites you to fairly and openly consider it. Jesus has come. In Jesus we can meet God. In Jesus we can find a place to commune with him for whom we were made. We can find life in him and only in him. In him you would find rest for your souls and peace with God. Consider that for your own good. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your determination to put yourself in the world, make yourself known, and then in particular for you to make yourself known to me. I'm thankful for that, and I pray that you would stir in the hearts of your people here in this room similar thankfulness. You would show them the beauty, the, the precious nature of that gift. You would draw from them thanksgiving and praise, and you would draw from them their participation. Draw them to come to you and make yourself available to them, Lord, when they, when they sit and pray, when they read and think, would you show yourself? Feed your people. And Father, there are surely some here who are not your people at the moment. Would you seek out individuals here in the room or elsewhere or somewhere else? Seek them out and draw them to you and save. You're a good God, and we put this in your hands. I ask you to build your church and to honor your name by showing us the beauty of this Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.